You know, I've learned after living here a little bit about farming. And this has to do with, uh, specifically as we turn our corner here in Romans 9, looking ahead to uh, Romans, um, Romans, Matthew. I was thinking about our men's Bible study is studying Romans, so I've got to shift thinking here. Matthew 9, turning the corner into Matthew 10, as we look at what is the gospel mission of our King Jesus, as Matthew compiles together Jesus is teaching on this subject, and, and, and uh, we'll see here this morning that, that it, it has a little bit to do with farming. I've learned quite a bit about uh, farming as far as compared to what I knew before moving to Indiana. It is not an easy vocation. In fact, it's, I think uh, many of those farming families wouldn't consider it a vocation. They would consider it more of a lifestyle Right? It's gonna, it's gonna, you're going to take what life gives you in, in your own style, I guess. My, my farming education came from uh, the hobby farm that I was, I was raised uh, tending to with my family. And my, my dad and mom, as well as Kelly's parents, are here this morning. And, and uh, many fond memories of that, that chicken house and chicken coop and those few cows and that anchor of corn uh, that, that taught us a lot of lessons. Um, if I had to set out to be a farmer like my dad as a hobby, I probably would have ended up a little bit more like Oliver Wendell uh, Douglas from Green Acres, if you guys remember uh, that guy riding his tractor in his three-piece suit. I recently learned about a man who decided he'd become a farmer, and he decided of all the things that he could raise between corn or soybeans or cattle, he decided to raise chickens, be a chicken farmer. He moved from the city into the country, and and he planned that simpler life. He bought 100 baby chicks, and they all died. I mean, none of them worked out. So he bought 100 more, and they all died. He's like, what gives here? I'm trying to raise chickens. I'm not doing very well as a chicken farmer here. So he wrote to the county extension office. He heard that's what you you do in this area. And so he he wrote out an email saying, can you please give me some advice here? I'm not doing well raising these chickens. He said, I don't know if the problem is that I'm planting them too deep or too close (laughs) together, but nothing's coming up. He probably needed to choose a new vocation. Heard about another farmer that, uh, that won the county lottery or the state lottery and uh, tried to, decided to try his, his hand at that. And, and he and his wife were talking about, so what are we going to do with this money? And of course, she was interested in let's retire, let's pay off some debt, let's, let's get that house in Florida, let's snowbird it. And she was like, what do you think we should do? And he said, I don't know. I think maybe I'll keep farming until it's all gone. I'd like to, I think you'll see here this morning why I think so much about farming from our passage here. As we move into verses 35 through 38, uh, and looking at the gospel mission of King Jesus, we read, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, 
teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Those of you guys who've been sitting through Matthew for a while here, uh, you're like, didn't we read this verse before? And we'll, we'll explain that. But it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. First thing I want to communicate and challenge you with here this morning is to be about King Jesus' gospel mission. Be about King Jesus' gospel mission. We, we, this, this verse 35 is almost identical to what we read in chapter 4, verse 23, when it was a description that Matthew gave of the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And we read in verse 23 of chapter 4, Jesus traveled throughout all the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. Verse 35 here is both summarizing this ministry and also transitioning to this new section where it talks about Jesus' ministry in all the cities and all the villages. Matthew looks back on the experience with Jesus and explains how his gospel mission expanded. And you have a statement there in your notes kind of explaining this. Jesus' gospel mission involves proclaiming him as God's savior king and the answer to sin's curse. Jesus' gospel mission involves proclaiming Jesus as God's savior king and the answer to sin's curse. Jesus spent much of his time preaching uh, you know, when people say, well, I don't really feel like you're a preacher. You're more of a teacher. They feel, you guys feel like you're giving me a compliment there, but I'll own being a preacher because that's what Jesus was, and I want to be like him. You know, I've heard the statement, preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. And I get what the saying, what that's talking about. It's saying, walk your talk. And if you're not going to be walking your talk, don't bother talking. But still, there needs to be some talk in order for the gospel to be communicated. And Jesus went about proclaiming, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Really what the gospel of the kingdom was at that time is the king is here. The kingdom has come because the kingdom is wherever the king resides. But we, we see the need for communicating the gospel verbally in Romans 10. Verses 9 through 15, it explains well the need for us to proclaim the gospel in a way that people can hear it, in a way that people can understand it. And, and so Romans, in, there in Romans 10 it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the promise that is there. But it goes on to say, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then it kind of asks this question. So how does the word get out? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You know, we've been intimidated by our culture, by the response that happens so often, uh, the, the insult that's intended. If we start communicating the gospel, that someone might say, stop preaching at me. Well, folks... If that's what it takes to do what somebody else might consider being preachy, don't stop. The gospel is simply this, that we are sinners. That we cannot approach God on our own. That we in our filthy, even our acts of righteousness are like filthy rags compared to God's righteousness. We cannot stand in his presence But our sin was laid on Christ. And Christ paid the penalty for that sin. He experienced the separation that that sin causes. And and he made his righteousness available to us by paying for that sin, dying on the cross, and being risen again. And, And... What it calls for is for us to recognize, Lord, I cannot have a relationship with you in my own righteousness. I need the righteousness of Christ that has been made available to me. And it can be as simple as explaining that. You need the righteousness of Christ. And if they want to call that preaching, so be it. Jesus' practice was to enter the synagogues of the Jewish people and preach the kingdom, that the kingdom of God was there. It was present. And it looked, it took faith to believe that Jesus was teaching this because Rome was still reigning over Israel. Israel was a, a, a conquered land. And these people were expecting that if the kingdom of God was there, if the king that was going to sit on David's throne was present, first thing he was going to do was take care of Rome. There would be political deliverance. Jesus performed miracles of healing and cast out demons as signs as, that communicated his authority that came with his rightful kingship. And the authority that he wielded was his ability to reverse the impact of the curse. The curse that came with disease and illness and pain. <clears throat> So were there any diseases or afflictions still in Israel after Jesus' ministry? Sure. See, when the New Testament describes um, something taking place for all people or, or and every, it, it's, it's usually different than what we think. We think it means every single one. Oftentimes it means every kind of something. For instance, you know, when Paul tells Timothy, pray for all men, and then he lists off all kinds 
of people that they should pray for. Governors, rulers, people in authority, those in authority. You see, there wasn't a type of city or village that Jesus didn't visit. There wasn't a type of disease or affliction that he wasn't able to reverse. And we'll see this ability be passed on to the apostles next week in how in chapter uh, 10, verse 1, as Josh will be preaching on next week, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. We are to be about Jesus' gospel mission, teaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom And he was also reversing the impact of sin's curse as he saw fit, as the Father directed. You know, I was cleaning out some cardboard boxes in our uh, garage that had piled up there. You know how that happens. And one of them was uh, from ChristianBooks.com. And I I, kind of know what they were communicating by this. But I read it and I was like, wow. The, the, The motto... The tagline on the cardboard box that the material came in was, everything Christian for less. <laughs> I'm afraid that American Christianity has adopted this slogan. I can get everything Christian for less. I mean, you know, I'm going to attend where The temperature is just perfect. The seats are just comfortable. The coffee is great. Nothing is expected of me. I'm going to voice my relationship with the Lord when it's easy, when when there's no blowback. Have we adopted that slogan? Everything Christian for less. We need to be about King Jesus' gospel mission. You know, this, this is a fun passage to preach, you know, for a place called Harvest, where we refer to ourselves as harvesters. You know, our motto is, it's about Jesus and his gospel mission. And I should actually say, it's about Jesus and you on his gospel mission. And, as our, and our emphasis in that is Jesus and his gospel mission. It's not about us. It's not about our comfort. He is worthy of our discomfort. He's worthy of our sacrifice. But yet it's not about our sacrifice. It's about him. He's worthy of our planning for getting the gospel to others. But it's not about our plans. It's about him. We are to be about King Jesus' gospel mission. Moving on here. Secondly from our passage... We see the challenge, be about Jesus' compassion for spiritual needs. We read in verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You see, Jesus' gospel mission involves helping people see their need to come under Jesus' loving authority. There's a lot of people that don't appreciate the idea of coming under anyone's authority, especially not God's. And typically, that's the sign that the Holy Spirit is just not at work in that person. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean we don't share. God is your creator. 
God is your king. God, we are to be under what he desires for us. We are to be living according to his design. God has always emphasized his compassion for his covenant people. Isaiah 54, 8 says, In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And we Christ followers are expected to mirror God's compassionate heart for his covenant people today. Colossians 3 verse 12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. What Jesus saw in the crowds was this. They were harassed and helpless. This literally means torn and thrown down. They were like sheep without a shepherd. God's covenant people, Israel, was often described as being God's sheep. And their leaders were expected to be like shepherds to God's flock. Zechariah shares how God lays blame for the state of his flock on their leaders, their under-shepherds. God is their chief shepherd, and their leaders were to be shepherds of his flock, you can read in Zechariah 10, verse 2 through 3. For the, household gods, for the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock the house of Judah. And we know less as God's church are God's covenant people. And we as his shepherds of his flock, we should take these verses seriously. But we as shepherds of our homes, shepherds of our relationships, shepherds of a ministry area should take these things seriously. The people thought that they need what they needed that, that, that were surrounding Jesus was physical healing or, or political revolution against Rome. But Jesus saw them as being tossed back and forth, thrown down and torn by spiritual depravity and being blinded by the, to their true need. And they were not being helped by those that were intended to be their shepherds. You know, imagine a man drives up to a mechanic's lot, right? And he drives the whole way up to the mechanics in reverse. And he explains that it's the only way that his car will drive. So the mechanic says, well, I guess I know what you want me to fix. He says, yeah, my, my rear view mirror. Can you give me a bigger one? That's how it is ministering to people usually. Typically, what they think is their biggest need is not their biggest need. See what Jesus saw as these people's biggest need. There's something to approaching people through their felt needs, the needs that they feel at the time. But we have a responsibility to our king to try to address what is the person's true, eternal need. We should have compassion for someone regarding their physical hunger and their broken home that they've come from and, and things like that. But in faith, we must seek to share what gives us our eternal hope, what continues to allow us to have strength 
to face whatever trials we come across, the confidence that we have for who we are in Christ. That is that Jesus paid it all. And all to him we owe. Like Jesus, we need to be about what a person's true and greatest needs are to know God as their Savior through Christ. So in carrying out the mission of Jesus, have compassion on people because they're spiritually lost. Give them the gospel. Use words. You know, this, like I said, this is a fun passage to preach because we get to review a little bit of who we are as Harvest Fellowship. And I, and I enjoy doing that as lead pastor. And our intention as a body of believers, it's, it's intended to be a snapshot of the future. It's intended to be what we believe God wants to make us into. And, and it came as a result of understanding our purposes and our values And that leads us to what our intention should be. And for a long while, we have seen this as harvesters on Jesus' gospel mission in our daily lives. Harvesters on gospel mission in our daily lives. So how do we arrive at our intention? Like I said, it's our purposes plus our values. Our purposes are kind of like our direction. What is the general direction we are moving in? And that has been, and, and they're on these, these uh, pieces of wood in the, the back of the sanctuary here. Our purposes is that we would exalt God. We would edify and equip believers. And that we would extend his kingdom. This is the direction that we should always be moving in with everything that we do. And, and our process for getting there is, is our way. It's, it's what we value. It's how God has wired us. That we pursue these purposes under the authority of God's word, applying the truth to daily life, walking in prayerful dependence with the ministry being done by the body in the context of healthy relationships, And discipling the next generation of whatever it is that I'm doing. So our direction plus our way of getting there. You know, if if you're heading out on a vacation and you're like, okay, this is where we're heading. So how are we going to get there? Are we taking the interstates or are we taking the back roads? You decide what way you're going to go. And that basically defines where you intend to get to. And in the same way, our purpose is the direction we're heading plus what, how God has wired us, what we value, lands us on our intention of harvesters on gospel mission in your daily life. So one writer says as we, as we move forward here, not only did Jesus heal, he also taught and preached But he could not do the work alone. He needed others to help him. He requested that his disciples pray that God would provide the needed workers. It was not long before the disciples themselves were involved in ministry of preaching and teaching and healing. And we'll see that in Matthew chapter 10. But those statements there, they, they don't necessarily sit well with us, right? Jesus could not do the work alone. It's like, wait a second. He's almighty God. He needed other people to do the work. 
so he told them to pray for it. Like, wait a second. Why not just tell these guys, go do the work? There's something in this, in this process. We look at this and we're like, this process seems muddled. This process, you know, like, I, I talk about how I've got the spiritual gift of making things complicated. All right? But we read the next two verses and we're kind of like, this seems more complicated than it needs to be. We see next how Jesus isn't about cutting to the end game. He's not about cutting corners when it comes to his gospel mission. It's about changing and growing his followers into more of his image. From what we're told in verses 37 through 38, I want to challenge you to be about God's relational strategy. We read in verses 37 and 38, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Like I said, this is a fun you know, a few verses to preach when your name is Harvest. And you refer to yourself as harvesters. The harvest here is completed by bringing people into the knowledge and acceptance, specifically in this time of Jesus' ministry, bringing them into the knowledge and acceptance that the king is here. Stop looking. The Messiah has come. The man who's going to sit on David's throne eventually is on the scene. That is the message that they are to take out. And Jesus was speaking about the many people in Israel that were anticipating hearing this. And in chapter 10, it will give Jesus' parts of their, their instructions to, parts of these instructions to the 12 disciples that they were received before being sent out as apostles. And that's the first time they'll be referred to as apostles. In chapter 10, we'll kind of be flies on the wall of Jesus' mission briefing to his disciples, who I believe are kind of like his special forces at that time, and how they will be given his authority to show, I come from the king, and he's given me his authority, and I'm going to show that to you. As they're called to cast out demons and, and heal the sick. But think about something. Why, why I see this as God's relational strategy. Jesus has shown us that he already can heal every kind of disease and illness. He's shown us that he can heal illness from any distance, right? He can say to the centurion, your servant is well. And who knows how far away that is, Jesus did it. He shows that he can even raise the dead. And we know that as God, he's almighty. He can do whatever he desires for as many people as he desires, and it won't deplete his power one bit. Here's my question. Why didn't Jesus just heal everyone, everywhere, all at once? In our thinking, this would be compassion. Just take care of all the troubles and just swoop. It's done, right? Along the same lines, he shares that there's a lot of evangelism. There's a lot of discipleship to be done. Why doesn't the Holy Spirit just show up to everyone and immediately become their personal teacher? Why doesn't God just convince everyone with a dream 
that he has sent Jesus to be their personal Lord and Savior. You see, Jesus' gospel mission involves people in relationship with God, helping others to come into a relationship with God, and all done in relationship with God. This is why I call it God's relational strategy. Taking these questions a little further, why does God include so many steps? Why wouldn't Jesus just say, sit back and watch God save people and bring in the harvest? Or why wouldn't Jesus just command Christians, become a part of the harvest? Instead he says, pray that God will send out laborers. Or pray that God will save people. Wouldn't that be enough? Instead, there's about three more steps in this process than maybe we would expect. First, they're to listen to Jesus and recognize the situation. Then they're to talk to God about it and ask him to send people out. And then God is to touch the hearts of other Christians and send them out into the harvest. And then the assumption is that they go and they, they, they go and they talk to unsaved people. And then the unsaved people become saved and begin a relationship with God. This is really not very um, efficient, if you ask me. This is why I say that we're called to be about God's relational strategy. Jesus' gospel mission involves people in relationship with God, helping others to come into relationship with God, all done in relationship with God. Let's think about a typical relational strategy to change us that God uses. Think of marriage, right? Or any relationship for that matter. But think of marriage. How God uses relationship in order to change us, in order to grow us into something different. And it takes a lot of going to God and saying, this is hard. Will you help me? You know, one spouse says, "Uh, I need to talk with you about a problem I'm having. What does the other spouse typically do? Listens for about two minutes. Okay, I got your solution. This is what you need to do. No, I just need to talk to you about a problem I'm having. Why are we talking about it if you don't want a solution? It's about relationship. It's about walking through it together. One spouse says, we need to get away and try camping. We need to get away and try this. We need to visit here. And the other one's like, why do we want to go anywhere? Because it's about relationship. One spouse says, I need to do some shopping. Man, I'm like, seek and buy it and get out of there, right? I'll never forget seeing a man walking out of Coles with his poor wife following about 10 steps behind, and she's just kind of walking with her head down, and he's sitting there going, when I go into a store, I know what I want, and I go and I get it, and I take, I buy it, and I walk out of the store. He wasn't getting the relational side of this thing. What about when one spouse says, I need to talk with you about my need for more intimacy? It's about relationship. 
One spouse says, this room needs to be repainted. I'm not looking at you, Dad. It's about relationship. God's design is for us to learn, to lean into, to embrace the different needs and become something new together. It takes a lot of relationship in order to get there. God communicates his heart to us in these verses. No matter how our culture appears, there's always fruit ready to be harvested. Our job is is to be harvesters, sharing the truth of the gospel, testing to see if a person is ripe for the picking. You know, I love praying. Uh, Before the service, we pray at 9.30 over names over here. Names that you as harvesters are seeking to share the gospel with, that you're asking for it to be covered in prayer. We're doing what's being told here. We're praying that God would send out harvesters. Some of you have family members in different states, and God can bring someone in their path to speak into their life. And we are... Encourage here that this is God's way of going about it. So do your part in prayer and do your part when you're with them of seeking to share the gospel with them. You know, when I pray for harvest to to gain more harvesters, to gain more families, I ask the Lord, Lord, will you give us more harvest? more laborers for your field. Will you bring people to Christ, bring them full spectrum to the point where they are your laborers in the field so that Montgomery County and Putnam County and Park County can see your gospel being lived out before them and shared with them. We are called to interact with God about his harvest fields, praying that he will put people in the right place at the right time according to his relational strategy, even though it is not the way we would be doing it. God has a relational bent to everything that he does. There is a harvest to be had, people to come into a restored relationship with God. There is a need for people to be a part of the harvest, to redeem their relationships by communicating the gospel within those relationships. And there is a relational process of fulfilling the need. We ask God to activate people for his gospel mission. And there's a relational answer to that prayer. God directs others to be involved, helping others to have the same relationship with God as they do. One beggar sharing with another beggar where to find food. In the coming passages, we'll see, as I mentioned, the 12 disciples take on the compassionate gospel mission of our Savior. And I love how Warren Wiersbe describes this whole kind of scenario. Jesus requests that his disciples pray that God would provide the needed workers. And it was not long before the disciples themselves were involved in the ministry of preaching and teaching and healing, as we'll see in chapter 10. In the same way, when we pray as he commanded, we will see what he saw, feel what he felt, and do what he did. God will multiply our lives as we share the great harvest that is ripe. Let's bow our heads. Lord God.
Let us not be harvesters in name only. Let us not be about your kingdom work only in what we sing. But Lord, in the process, allow us, Father, to walk closely with you, sensing your direction, sensing your lead, ready to share the hope that we have that others so desperately need. Lord, we do pray that you would send out your laborers into your harvest field. And Lord, I think there's a lot of them sitting right here. Lord, you're going to take us into different places. You're going to take us across different people in our daily lives. And I pray, Lord, that we would be about your gospel mission. And we would be responsive and receptive to how you want to use us. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.